Hey everyone, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to sit down today with Whitney Johnson, who's the author of Build an A-Team. In today's conversation, we discussed her new book, and in particular, how organizations are composed of S-curves, or a collection of S-curves, and what that actually means. We go into things like, how should you properly hire? What are the attributes you should be looking for when you do hire? What's the cost-benefit of hiring wrong, and why it's so important to get it right? We also talk about this idea of giving new employees a test run of one to three months or on a per project basis to make sure they're the right fit before they go full time with you. Lastly, we cover four questions that will help you determine where you or a member of your team are on the S curve and whether it's time for you to move to the next challenge or continue to master where you're at right now. So a lot of good stuff. I think a lot of inspirational ideas shared here today, but a lot of practical tools to both find and hire the best people for the job so you can grow your business and profit. So without further ado, let's get to it. So Whitney, in your new book, Build an A-Team, you explain that every organization is a collection of individual S-curves. Can you explain what that means precisely? Sure. All right. So I want everybody to picture an S in their mind. And then I want you to picture the S is on a piece of paper. And there's this X axis that goes from left to right. And that X axis is time. And then there's a Y axis that goes from bottom to top, which is how good you are. And so if you think about that S, the bottom of that S, it's the low end of your learning curve where you're inexperienced. And so whenever you start a business or you start a new job, for example, you're going to be at the low end of the curve. You're going to be inexperienced and feel like at least for the first six months, you have no idea what you're doing. Then as you work hard and time passes, you're going to suddenly move into the knee of that curve. And that's the steep part of the S, that back, that sleek part of the back, sleek part of the S. And that's the middle of the S curve. That's the sweet spot. And that's where you're feeling really engaged. And that typically will come after you've, for example, you've started a business, you've been doing it for six months to a year, and you started to feel like, you know what, I, I think I kind of know what I'm doing now. I'm feeling this sense of confidence. I'm feeling competent and I'm feeling really engaged with what I'm doing. Then after two or three years in that sweet spot, you get to the top of the S. So time has passed, three or four years have passed, you've gotten really good at what you're doing, you're at the top of the S. And at that point, you're what you consider to be a master, you know exactly what you're doing. But because you know, you're exact exactly what you're doing, and you're no longer learning, you can get bored. And so once you get to that point, if you don't jump to the bottom of a new S and a new learning curve and start all over again, then you risk actually, as I would describe, it getting disrupted if you aren't willing to disrupt yourself. And so it's a cycle within an organization or with an individual, I would say, at least to start with, of learn, and then leap, and then repeat. From the perspective of the employer, or the manager, how do you quantify where somebody is at on that S curve? 
Well, so there's a very shorthand way that you can do it. Um, you are typically going to be at the low end of the S curve for six months to a year. You'll be in the sweet spot of a learning curve for two to three years. And then at the high end of the S curve for six months to a year. So that's a rule of thumb that you can use. Now, for all of your listeners, I do have a diagnostic. So if you go to my website, WhitneyJohnson.com, backslash diagnostic, you can take what's called the S curve locator and see where you are on the learning curve. And then you can also see where every single person on your team is on the learning curve. Now, um, would it be helpful if I, if I talk about why exactly you're a collection of learning curves or do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. All right. So, so we've just described how every single person, you as an entrepreneur, as a solopreneur, you are on a learning curve and you probably started this business because you were at the top of a learning curve and now you needed to move the bottom of a learning curve and now you're there. Well, every organization is a collection of learning curves. And so you're at one point on the learning curve, maybe at the low end, the sweet spot or the high end, then you're hiring people onto your team who are also on somewhere on the learning curve. You might have some people who are absolute experts, some people in the sweet spot, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in order to optimize for innovation as an organization, in order to build a great team, you want to have at any given time, approximately 15% of your people at the low end who are inexperienced. Now, it's sometimes frustrating because they're inexperienced, but they're also asking lots of really good questions that are helping you figure out how to do things differently. You want 70% of your people at any given time in the sweet spot of the curve. So maybe if you've got five people on your team or your company, you're going to have three people in the sweet spot, one person at the low end. And then you want to have one person at the high end of that learning curve who is a master, whether they're actually working for you or they're a consultant that you've hired. And so what happens when you've got this, this flock of S's, your big S's and your little S's, you're able to really build a great team because people have different um, there are different places on the learning curve. And in fact, if you want to know if you're about to get disrupted, you just take a look at how many people are at the high end of the curve. Because when you're at the high end, you're bored and you either leave or you get complacent. And bored and complacent people don't innovate. They they get disrupted. So as I understand it, the S-curve itself, of course, is is this process of learning and mastery. And then there, of course, any organization will be a collection of these S-curves. Every individual is is on some sort of S-curve, no matter what. Um, and, and so that all makes sense to me. How do you actually hire with this in mind? Or does it actually affect hiring whatsoever? Or is that kind of just a yeah. tertiary piece of it? It absolutely does. Okay, so it so what you want to do is, first of all, figure out, and, and some of you or most of all of you are going to instinctively know where people are on the learning curve. And so you want to say to yourself, okay, my, co- my company is a collection of these curves. I've got one person at the low end. I've got one person at the high end. I'm in the sweet spot. So I need two more people in the sweet spot. And so you can use this to map out the um, expertise levels that you need within your organization, because every person, depending on where they are are on the curve, is going to bring different skill sets. And I talk a about this in great detail in terms of recruiting and hiring, low end, middle and high in my book, um, Build an A-Team that's coming out. And I'll give you the link so you can download the first chapter later. But um, so that's how you think about building a team. Now, if you want to, let's dive down on this a little bit more to give us something a little bit more practical. 
Now, if you look at my framework of personal disruption, um, there are seven accelerants that allow you to move up a learning curve more quickly once you're at the low end. And, um, and the very first accelerant or lever of change that you can pull is to take the right kinds of risks. And so there are always two kinds of risks you can take. There's competitive risk and there's market risk. And so competitive risk, when you're trying to build a team, is to go out and try to find someone who... Um, for example, already has an Ivy League MBA, there are, you know, five other people that want to hire them, they're going to be really, really expensive, you don't know if you can get them to come work for you, that would be competitive risk. Market risk when you're building a team is you look for someone who isn't necessarily um, a person that people are looking to hire. They're, um, they're, uh, there are people that are sort of unknown quantities. They might be on-rampers. They might be people who are um, who are self-taught. They might be, be people who, um, who are doing one role for you right now and they want to do another role. Now, so that's a way you play where no one else is playing and you bring people in. But most importantly, when you're thinking about this in terms of managing a team, is you want to hire people in general, at the low end, you want to hire for potential, not for proficiency. And I'm gonna tell you a really quick story that really illustrates this well. There's a, a town called Butte, Montana, and it's known as the richest hill on earth. In the mid 1800s, miners came to pan for gold. When the initial rush disappointed, they sold their claims for dirt cheap. The next wave of miners, they discovered copper. At the time, it wasn't that valuable, but as technology advanced and electrical wiring became a thing, then copper became extremely valuable. Butte, Montana, presented this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the miners who were patient, and they're now known as copper kings. So as you're building your business, are you looking for gold or will copper do? Because there are compelling reasons to go for copper, to hire for potential, not for proficiency. So what ends up happening is when you hire for potential, not for proficiency, then you bring people into your business who may not know a lot, but then you know that you're going to get them and have them be really happy working for you for two or three years, which you really need because you need, when you've got a team of three or four people, you've got to have some stability. Otherwise, you've got a person for a month and they're gone and that can really upset things. So I'll stop there and see what questions you might have. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to recall, in your book, did you cover, it was either your book, I was reading some, maybe, I believe some maybe corollary articles written by you or somebody else in the space on hiring. Because I found this interesting, this idea was around the how expensive it is to lose an employee and then to get yes. a new employee in their place was that was that it in was the book? In I feel, book it was in okay book. so so yeah. i just read this a few nights ago so i was like it's it's and i've been thinking through these different ideas so that was something that really stuck out to me and so <clears throat> with that in mind it you know a lot of people i don't think actually quantify or even try to quantify what the value of an employee is worth uh, at the outset uh they look at maybe what they're going to to pay that person, so it's definitely like a line item expense. But in terms of there's there's this cost benefit and there's this this loss that can come with hiring the wrong person or or even managing improperly, all these other things. There's a lot of you know potential downside risk. So with that in mind, I'm curious. I know you said that you do want to hire at say the the beginning side of the the S curve or there's benefits to that. But in terms of like 
actually knowing whether somebody can do a job. I mean, how do I, how do mm. I know? I'll sit down with yeah. somebody, I'll talk to them. I might get a good vibe, but I don't know if they're actually going to be performers or if they're just talkers. Like how yeah, do you go through that exactly. process? It's kind of a, it's kind of a landmine. It's a great uh, question. You and yeah. you know, it's funny because I, I am like many of you where I am an entrepreneur and I've got a team of about, you know, 10 people between my, you know, 10, 1099s, et cetera. And so maybe some sort of stories from the trenches in my own trenches, as opposed to your trenches will be helpful. Um, one of the things I have discovered is that I work best when before I hire someone is I, I try before I buy. Um, so I meet people that I think I want to work with and I'm like, you're fantastic. I want to work with you. But then we scope it and we say, let's work on one project together. Let, and this project will have a beginning. It will have an end, um, either once the project's completed or we'll work together for three months. And so what that allows us to do is figure out if in fact we can work together, if they like me, if I like them, et cetera. I'm actually in the middle right now of a situation where I did not do that. I did not listen to my own advice because we were in a little bit of a pinch, which is sometimes what happens is you're in this pinch. And so then you hire quickly and I'm regretting it. Um, I hired someone that I hadn't had a chance to test and we're in the process of letting that person go. And so I think that would be my first piece of advice is to try before you buy. The second piece of advice, and this is another experience that I'm having is um, as a solopreneur, it's very likely that you are going to need to bring in some people who are top of the curve people, or you think they're in the sweet spot. I've had someone that I brought in that was an on-ramper that I thought, oh, you know, they're kind of at the low end, but they're in the sweet spot because they've got domain expertise. Within two years, top of the curve. And so now we're having to try to figure out, okay, how do we how do, how do we gracefully allow this person to jump to a new curve or have the work that they're doing for me morph? I've got another person who's getting to the top of their curve really quickly. So what's that going to look like? Um, how are we going to work together in the future? So what I would say is try before you buy, recognize that you may find people that you're hiring for potential, not for proficiency, but if you're good at spotting talent, they're going to get there pretty quickly. And so how do you... Um, find one, maybe two people who can also do that job. So you've got some redundancy built into your business model. But then at the same time, recognize that when people get to the top of their learning curve, and instead of trying to hold on to them and grasp at them, which we tend to want to do to talent hoard, is to recognize that, you know, sometimes people have a beginning, they have an end, and then you gracefully and graciously let them move on and help them find something else, as they also help you find someone to replace them. Uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting. I love the idea of testing something out. So, kind of hiring somebody in a freelancer consultant capacity, uh, project based, perhaps, or at least time based over a, a, sh a relatively short period of time. But you mentioned three months, uh, so it sounds like you need three months um, to to properly uh, test somebody to see if they are actually going to be the right fit over the long haul. Yeah. And Tom, I, not necessarily three months. I mean, it, it depends on what the pro project is. It depends on the intensity of the work, but, but, but the, but the principle is there. Try before you buy. Mm -hmm. Do you think there, as far as any rule of thumb in terms of like kind of minimum? Cause I, 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 I agree with you. Like I know that that's totally relative, but I wonder if, if somebody's thinking about this, okay, I want, I do want to test somebody out. I want to, I want to work with them. Um, how 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 long do we have to go before I've I've given it its proper due diligence? Well, so I would say that most I'm going to guess that most of your listeners, because you are 
people with teams of two to five people, I think for a long time, you're going to have a lot of 1099s. I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense to bulk up and beef up your company with lots of full-time employees immediately. So I think there are going to be a lot of instances where you can say, let's just do one project together. And then you're like, okay, let's do another project together. And then over time, it can, you can be very discovery driven of finally saying, you know what, Uh, we love working together, let's build something. And and then finding ways to build things together. And then also being aware of the fact that, you know, there are going to be some people who want to just work for straight cash, and they're, they're done. And then there are going to be other people over time, which I have found is important is, do you let them somehow participate in the upside of your business? I feel like that's really important to do. Some people may not want to do that. But I am also trying to experiment and say, okay, are there ways if, if to have people Um, be more invested in what we're doing to find some sort of profit sharing or revenue sharing in, in certain project that they're working on. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So another point I wanted to bring up actually, before we get into that was this idea of the uh, hiring at the lower or the beginning part of the S curve. uh, So hiring for potential, but this idea of once somebody's actually reached mastery, what happens next? Um, My experience is that some people uh, hit an area of, of, we'll say mastery or expertise. And that's, that's really it. And that's as far as they're going to go. And that could be personal. It could be, uh, something else, but that's really it. Does that mean you have to get rid of that person? Does it always have to be somebody who can move up to the next ladder, so to speak, or the next step in the ladder? Um, and this uh, coming from my background in the military, I saw this, but even just outside of the military as well, I find that that's something that manifests itself time and time again, that some people, not everybody's as driven as, as you and I, the entrepreneur who's listening to this or the creator who's listening to this, driven, like self-driven to excel. The average person that I've, I've interacted with in my life is much more content with the nine to five, the consistency of a paycheck and also just the, the uh, knowing what they're going to do when they show up every day, um, white collar or blue collar work. I find that to be the actual um, majority of people. So my question is, what does it look like if we hire somebody, they reach their say potential, and then they kind of cap out there? Is that somebody that we we should say then kind of remove or hire, put somebody new in their place to then get to the next level? How do you how do you handle that? It's a great question, Tom. Um, I would say, um, so adhering to this idea of the framework, um, you need to have people, you know, 15% at low end, 70% the sweet spot, 15% at the high end. And once people have been in a role doing the same thing over and over again for three, four or five years, they're going to be at the top of their learning curve. Now, there are going to be exceptions. And I've had people ask me this. They're like, you know, I, I've said to so-and-so, they're so good. I want them to do something new. And they say to me, I don't want to move. And then my question to them is, well, are they still performing really, really well? And they're like, yeah, they are. And I said, well, then they're actually still in the sweet spot. So let them go. I don't think that's the question you're asking. I think so, but there are people like that. We all have people like that on our team or we, or you may have at some point where, where what happens is that they're really happy and they're climbing other S curves and other parts of their lives. And so they come to work for stability. They're able to show up, work hard and deliver. And so then they've just extended out the sweet spot of the curve. And so that's one way that this can look. Now, another way that this can look is when you get someone at the top of their curve, and they are starting to dial it in, they've gotten somewhat complacent. I think this is where you as a manager, um, 
need to have a conversation with them. And now there is the possibility that they can be at the high end of the curve and they are very, very productive in that they are working as a pace setter for low enders to excel. They're mentoring a lot of people. So they are contributing as you would expect a high ender to contribute. But the fact of the matter is, is that when our brains don't learn, we get bored. And when we get bored, we get complacent. So as a manager, what we need to be able to do is say, I need your whole brain. And I got your whole brain when you're in the sweet spot. But now I'm not getting your whole brain. So we've got a couple of options here. One option is I'd like you to take on this new project, I'd like you to work with, you know, and they don't necessarily have to change departments, they just need to take on different things that force them to feel like uh, a beginner at the low end of the curve again, and ask lots of questions. So you can change the configuration of the team, you can change who they're working with as a client, you can give them new projects, so there's different ways that that can look. But in order for me to get the most out of you, in order for you to get the most out of you, we need you to do something new. I would like that to be here. Um, and so let's see if we can make that work. Uh, but if it's, if that's not what you want to do, that's okay, too. Let's find um, a customer for you to go work with. Let's find somewhere else for you to go. Now, I know I'm making this sound a lot easier than it is. But in broad strokes, that's what it needs to look like. Because fundamentally, everyone does want to grow. We all want to grow. Um, it's going to look different for everybody, but I think everybody does want to grow. It's just like the other day I had some, um, I, I teach some 16 and 17 year old girls at our church and they said, okay, everybody go talk to new people. And I made all the girls talk to other people and they were kind of mad at me. But then after it was over, they're like, Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's what I needed. It was good that I did that. And I think it's the same is true for people who work for us. Well, it sounds like the sweet spot, uh, all things being equal and presuming the ability to actually measure this or have the pulse on it is that somebody always has one foot in in mastery and, and one foot on the edge of a, a steeper learning curve. And that, that, that yeah, that, that in-between order and, and chaos, if you will, uh, that comes with any kind of uh, creative territory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is interesting. So another thought I had was, I wonder if we can turn this like um, kind of inward. Does this apply to bosses, employers, and say the solopreneur or writer, author, producer, creator listening to the show right now? Maybe they're working individually. Maybe they have some contractors, but not necessarily looking to scale up. But wondering, does this fr- is this framework something we should actually use for self analysis at all, or is this t- is the way you approach this? This is for you know, the way we hire and place people within an organization? Or is there any merit to it as a metric for internal evaluation? Absolutely. In fact, the place that this started was the internal. So when I was working, um, I had co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, and we were applying this framework of disruptive innovation to products and services. I had this big aha that it actually was a framework for managing change beginning with the individual. And so I've spent the last five years codifying and researching a framework of personal disruption so that when you're scaling a business or trying to get your people to be more innovative, you've got a structure to do this. And that's the seven point framework that I alluded to earlier. Um, What happened as I started talking to people and, and keynoting and coaching and people would say, okay, yeah, I get it. I got it. I want to disrupt myself, but how do I get my people that work for me to disrupt themselves? And how do I create an ecosystem around me in order to make that 
possible. And so this book, Build an A-Team, is in response to that. Um, my premise, my foundational premise, though, is that the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. And when you um, require yourself to disrupt, when you disrupt yourself, um, when you allow, encourage, and require the people around you to disrupt themselves, when you learn, leap, and repeat, that personal disruption, that finding something interesting for myself to do, always opens the door for your company to disrupt. Because as you open doors for yourself, you are in effect opening opening doors, finding opportunities in the marketplace for the organization or for the business that you're you're building. Got it. So I my mind kind of immediately raised this uh, idea of, you mentioned the individual being the, the fundamental unit of disruption. And I thought about that. And I understand that disruption is part, is a, a piece or integral piece or part, part and parcel with, with um, innovation. It, it's just the nature of the beast. You can't have innovation without disruption. I mean, I don't know if they're synonyms, but they're very closely intertwined. But I was then thinking and wondering, uh, you know, at what point um, does that become or can that become uh, a negative, have a ne- negative impact? I, I think we can probably make a leap and say, well, there's probably a lot of, a lot of, a lot of use cases where that's, that happens, where, somebody kind of goes outside uh, their left and right limit and maybe something bad would happen. I'm guessing that's probably less likely than somebody actually trying to move outside the comfort zone and good things happening. But where I'm getting at with this is, I wonder, are there any any particular things you would say when it comes to this process, hiring, um, building this kind of A team, as you call it, are there any don't do's? Mm-hmm. Like any rules to, any things to certainly avoid? Because, and I, I say this just one last preface, because a lot of the stuff obviously is, is it's a it's a useful theoretical framework. I think it's actually made more practical since you have a diagnostic tool and I encourage people to go check that out. So that that's great. But I know from a learning perspective, people learn best when actually they start, at least when they're starting a new, moving into new territory, what the things are that they ought not to do. So I wonder if there's anything like that that people can take away and be like, okay, those are a few of the things I should just definitely avoid, mm-hmm. and at least I'll avoid this great catastrophe. Okay. Yeah, a couple thoughts come to mind. Um, the first is, um, so... So every time you jump to a new learning curve, which is what most of your listeners have done, um, is they've jumped to a new learning curve and are building a business. Um, there's always the question of, is this the right learning curve? Uh, because when you look at disruption theory, the odds of success are six times higher when you pursue a disruptive course. Um, but that's only 6% to 36%. So there's still always the risk that you're on the wrong curve. Now, the fact is, is that we have lots of wrong curves in our lives. And so the question I would say to you is to be able to assess whether it's the wrong or the right curve pretty quickly so that you know when it's time to jump to a new learning curve. So I would give you four quick questions that you can ask to help you with that. The first is, number one, um, to help raise the odds that you're on the right learning curve is to number one, take on the market risk, like I talked about a minute ago, to not say to yourself, wow, I can see there's this big market over there. There's all these, there's all these people, this is really exciting and go after that. Be much more willing to play where other people aren't playing where you're not sure if there's a market because if there is a market, then 
because you were you created it, then you're much more likely to be able to dominate that market. So that would be the first thing that you would be want to, wanting to think about. Don't take on lots of competitive risks unless you're 100% certain you can win. Take on market risk. The second thing is make sure you're playing to your distinctive strengths, what you do well that other people don't. We tend to really value what people do well um, that aren't us, and we really undervalue what we do well. As you're looking at climbing this learning curve, make sure you don't get into this greener pastures. Wow, that looks really awesome. Focus on what you do well, because it's much more likely that you're going to get this business that you're trying to build right. If you're playing where no one else is playing, and you are truly playing to your strengths, those things that you do reflexively well, that you don't even you're not even aware that you do them, um, play to those. Then the third question I would be asking yourself is, is this work that you're doing now, is it hard but not debilitating? So every morning when you wake up, are you thinking, this is so hard, but I am having so much fun? Like, that's how you want to feel. Like, I'm scaling this curve, but I love it. If it's debilitating and you're really dreading it and you're not, you're like, yeah, tomorrow I'll work on it. Well, then probably wrong curve. And then the fourth question you want to ask yourself is, am I gaining momentum? Meaning, um, You know, the starting place as you're starting out this business is to a large degree irrelevant. What matters is think about the low end of that curve is are you growing and how fast are you is your rate of growth increasing? And if your answers to these four questions are no, then you need to know that this is the wrong curve and it's time to jump to a new curve as quickly as possible. Seth Godin said winners quit all the time. They just quit the right stuff at the right time. And so my advice to people who are listening to this, the thing that they absolutely should not do is when you realize if your answers to these questions are no, or even, you know, three of the answers are no, then if it's the wrong curve, jump to a new curve quickly, move on, keep iterating, because no S curve is ever wasted. And you've got this ambition, this desire to be on the right curve to build this business. So once you realize it's the wrong curve, quit it, because winners quit all the time, and then iterate until you find the right curve. Mm, I love it. It actually reminds me of a concept, I think it was um, Scott Adams, who's the artist uh, known for Dilbert, who wrote about in one of his books, the idea of uh, systems learning um, and this idea of also and, and also building skill sets and that it's it's uh, actually valuable to build a wide range of skill sets. Mm. And so I think, yeah, there's absolutely mastery in one vertical, we'll say. But the idea of, you know, getting good at something, but even if you come up and it, it, it gets difficult and you realize, okay, this isn't the right thing for me, this is not not the right, uh, right, right path. If you've developed any sort of mastery or even, you know, pre-mastery, just any ability in that, in that vertical, we'll call it, it actually can add value to whatever that next thing you go into is. So even in failure, I think there's a lot of um, value that can be created. And like you said, it's like, don't be, a, don't be ashamed and don't be afraid to quit. It's like, quit, now move on to something else and, and do it even better. I think that's a, a great insight. Right. And practice doing it. I'll give you an example. Just the other day, we thought, oh, we, we need to increase our iTunes ratings on our podcast, right? I'm sure this is something that you're always looking at. So we're like, let's do an experiment. Let's go on LinkedIn and say over the next hour, if people ask me a question, or if people will re- leave a review on iTunes, then I will get offline and, and have a conversation with them and ask the questions. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this because it might not work. Well, we did it. And it didn't really work. I think one person did it. But that was such a good experience for me because I was practicing experimenting. I was practicing failing. And then I was like, oh, that didn't work. Next. But if you think about it, 
a lot of us don't do that very often. We don't A-B test. We don't just like, let's try it, see what happens. Let's try it, let's see what happens. And so that would be something I would really encourage each one of you to do is like every day say, I'm going to do an experiment and see what works and what doesn't. And knowing that it's totally okay if it doesn't work, that really flexes our muscle of getting more comfortable with failure. Mm, I love that. Actually, you know, I think that's a, a great way to wrap this up, Whitney. So before you go, where can people reach out to find you and where can they get your latest book, Build an A-Team? Oh, yeah. So you can download the diagnostic like we talked about, WhitneyJohnson.com backslash um, diagnostic. Or if you want to download the first chapter of the book, it would be backslash A-Team. And then you can buy the book anywhere or pre-order it anywhere on Amazon. Um, you can email me at WJ at WhitneyJohnson.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Whitney, thank you so much. This is fantastic. I'll make sure those are in the show notes. For everybody listening, make sure to check out the book, Build an A-Team. And Whitney, thank you for being on In the Trenches. Thank you.